This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Ricky Rodriguez, the author of A Kiss Across the Ocean, Transatlantic Intimacies of British Post-Punk and U.S. Latinidad. Can you start by talking a little bit about how um, this book came to be and why you decided to um, sort of write about British post-punk and your relationship with it? Sure. So there are a number of routes that led to this book. Um, Initially, I was working on a second book, which was much more um, academic um, oriented, uh, which isn't to say that this one isn't, but um, it has a different shape and character, which I'll talk about in a bit. But um, the impetus really to uh, start this project was a call for papers uh, for a symposium on the British um, electro duo Pet Shop Boys. Um, And the symposium uh, was scheduled to take place uh, at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And I had just recently met uh, a couple of friends, uh, a couple of guys who became friends through a friend of ours uh, who lives in L.A. and was visiting Chicago. And I was living in Chicago at the time. And so we hit it off and they told me, well, if you're ever in Scotland, let us know. And um, I also have a cousin who lives in Glasgow. So it was you know, really exciting to see that call for papers because not only would I have the chance to go to Scotland for the first time, but also to present on one of my favorite um, music artists. And unfortunately, my proposal was accepted and I delivered a paper at the symposium on the Pet Shop Boys song Domino Dancing and the music video and the controversy uh, that it caused when it was initially released. Uh, the video uh, was banned from MTV. The song was seen as um, the downfall of the Pet Shop Boys' um, imperial phase, as singer Neil Tennant called it. Uh, and so it didn't chart as high, and uh, a lot of people speculated it was because it had um, outright flirted with a Latin sound. Um, and it always had always been one of my favorite songs because the way that it does incorporate um elements of latin freestyle which was popular in the 1980s so you know i i kind of had the chance to present that and um i got a lot of really great reception uh on the paper and i didn't know where it was going to lead uh initially the conference organizers had promised to um, edit an anthology which uh, never came to fruition uh, and then a few weeks later, I gave a talk at a conference um, on a panel uh, focused on Susie and the Banshees. And and that was another opportunity to write about a band that I had loved and admired uh, since I was a teenager. 
And so there are these two uh, papers that I delivered that I thought could maybe develop into something eventually. Um, and so uh, fast forward a few years to the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, and of course, you know, you're familiar with this, we all went into lockdown. And although we were doing most of our work online, um, there was um, a little bit more time uh, for uh, introspect introspection and um, and you know the need to kind of occupy yourself with um, things um, and I personally I was on the brink of falling into um, somewhat of a depression um, as was the case for a lot of people and so I decided to throw myself into my writing. But the book project that I had been working on had just um, not really um, interested me anymore. So I kind of put that on the back burner and thought about maybe putting, you know, or pulling together these two papers that I delivered and turning it into a book project. And soon enough, it just started um, uh, making sense. And interestingly, you know, the the Susie and the Banshees chapter is the first chapter in the book and the Pet Shop Boys chapter is the last chapter. And they're kind of seen as, you know, I think in terms of popular music, um, polar opposites, Susie and the Banshees being a band that develops from the early British punk movement and the Pet Shop Boys who probably at first blush don't seem anything like punk. Um, and yet there are parallels that you can draw between them. And I thought, you know, this could be something. And so I just started thinking about the various ways that um, Latin Latino culture influenced British musicians, because at the time there was a lot of conversation about how, you know, Latinos were gravitating towards artists like Morrissey, the former lead singer of the Smiths, and so much ink had been spilled uh, writing about, you know, what that phenomenon was about and people trying to, you know, decode or unlock the the mystery of, of that. And it just seemed natural to me that there was this huge fan base, you know, given the fact that, you know, I grew up um, in Southern California, being of Mexican-American heritage, and a lot of my friends were also into this music at that time. And so I'd been following these artists for uh, forever. But I also wanted to put a spin on it and, and not talk about Latino fandom, uh, but also to think about the mutual influences um, that were at play um, with respect to Latino audiences and British musicians. And so, you know, it, it kind of started collecting the pieces of the puzzle and and seeing how um, these influences, you know, were, you know, were <laughs> quite expansive and 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 and. And so it was just kind of unlocking, you know, these um, different examples uh, by digging into the magazines that I'd been reading since I was a teenager, Smash Hits, uh, the British version of the magazine, and Star Hits, the U.S. version, um, newspapers like New Musical Express, uh, Record Mirror, um, and... You know, of course, you know, having you know been a tenured professor who had, an, you know, a, a steady source of income now, unlike uh, my teenage years where it was kind of like saving lunch money in order to buy a record or um, asking my parents if I could buy a magazine when we went grocery shopping, I could locate materials that I didn't have access to at the time, and so in many ways, you know, aside from traveling to the UK and, and doing a little bit of archival work in the British library, um, I was able to, you know, turn to eBay as my um, record store um, <laughs> magazine stand where I could collect a lot of these periodicals that um, had you know, fallen, 
between my fingers as a teenager that I either, either couldn't locate or couldn't afford. Um, so yeah, it was just a, a, a process of amassing um, all of this material, uh, creating an archive, and then also, um, you know, creating an argument, uh, which is about that mutual influence. Uh, and also, um, I'm probably talking way too much, Rebecca. Um, I'll just say this, you know, initially, it started out as more of an academic book, you know, I was trying not to include myself in the narrative, even though I had been a huge fan of these bands. But I was part of a writing group where one of my colleagues, who's a creative writer, um, identified a personal anecdote in one of the footnotes. And he said, this needs to be in the body of the text. And I told him, I can't do that because, you know, it, it, it would kind of delegitimate <laughs> the study as, you know, an academic study. And, and I felt like, you know, he gave me a license to do that. And once I did, it just opened a floodgate for me to kind of incorporate my own personal experience alongside uh, writing about um, this musical um genre or this cultural phenomenon um, in a way that was both scholarly um, as well as personal um, and, you know, just kind of feeling my way around um, by way of writing, you know, I was, I think I was able to kind of combine those two approaches and the end result is this book. I will agree with your colleague that I think it's, I loved that personal connection, right? And it might be that you and I are very close in age, right? Like, and had some similar um, musical, like, background tastes. And and so I think, like, I was like, oh, I remember that. I remember that when that came out or, you know, that tour or those kind those kind like, so I love that personal connection. It was wonderful. Um, and Thank I will you. all, yeah, and I will say, like, I appreciate, um, as a as a gigantic Smiths fan and um a like recovering Morrissey fan, I will say. <laughs> That's the best yeah. way to say it. I love uh, it. <laughs> like, right? Like it's hard. It's mm -hmm. you know, it's it's it, yeah. Um and I interviewed um Melissa Hidalgo about Maslandia. You talk about that in here. Like, I really did appreciate and like how you said, like this that has been covered, this kind of fandom. So I appreciated how you really thought about um how like what this music was drawing from culturally, like how it was drawing from like culturally, thinking about what's going on at that time. And it's not just about so, you know, the fan experience is there, but it's about also about this cultural connection. Um, and so one of the things I'd love for you to talk about um, is like how you define post-punk, because right, you said like we can't you come at this from very different angles and we can talk about the artists that you um, discuss through this. But I think like you you create a definition for your about post-punk that I think we, you know, needs to be talked about so that because um, people look at it differently, right? Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that question, Rebecca. Yeah. It's something that I've been taken to task on um, a few of the book, a few of the reviews of the book that have come out um, have <laughs> focused on that and have questioned whether post-punk is the appropriate category to use as opposed to say new wave or, synth pop or um you know goth or you know more recent iterations of those categories like shoegaze i mean the the genres and the categories just proliferate over the years um but i was insistent on using post-punk because of the way one that i had become increasingly frustrated at how 
post-punk was given a very limited uh, time frame, and it was always about identifying particular characteristics of a the genre um, that I felt didn't fully encapsulate what post-punk could be. And so for me, it was a category that I could kind of open up and think about its overlap with pop music, um, and then also its deep roots in the history of punk, because a lot of bands on the surface who wouldn't appear to be post-punk according to those more traditional definitions of that of that genre, you know, like Culture Club, you know, I thought, we're, well, you know, they might play, you know, they might be more pop or pop-oriented uh, with respect to their sound. But there's a deep history um, of, of, of that you know accompanies that band that locates them in the history of punk. You know the drummer John Moss used to be a member of the Clash as well as the Damned. Boy George was you know kind of part of that scene and and talks about um, going to Sex Pistols and Susie and the Banshees shows and how those were just so formative in terms of uh, constructing his uh, musical as well as um, you know personal identity. Um, and, you know, I think those resistant elements don't always translate just uh, in terms of music, but also the way that certain uh, forms of defiance that were so characteristic of the punk movement trickle into, you know, later pop in the 80s so that you have, you know, a lot of gender ambiguous figures who I feel like kind of embrace this punk ethos of defiance that goes against, you know, traditional norms. And so for me, it was a way to, you know, kind of expand the category to think of, you know, a, a temporal moment that um, comes after punk but that still has, you know, a connection to punk um, in some, you know, very undeniable ways. Um, and then also the way that post-punk had been defined a lot of, uh, most of the time by predominantly male journalists, it was very male-oriented and a lot of bands who couldn't qualify as post-punk weren't being identified as such. Um, you know, like I think the Slits are an interesting example, you know, they're very much punk, but I would also say they're post-punk because of the way that they are experimenting with different musical genres. You know, they're very much indebted to reggae, which was hugely influential for a number of punk musicians uh, like the Sex Pistols. But, you know, you'd be hard pressed to, to hear that reggae influence as opposed to, say, you know, listening to the, the Slits album Cut which is all reggae and, you know, and the fact that Island Records, uh, which had been known for releasing reggae uh, music, you know, per, you know, it was the label that uh, Cut was released on. I just thought, you know, it's it, it, it's very gendered. And, and I think the my embrace of post-punk and my, you know, stubbornness to kind of move it away from the way that had, had been traditionally deployed was precisely about highlighting the elements of gender and sexuality that had been repressed and, you know, the, the, the journalism that attempted to define it uh, in a very limited um, way um, and and drawing attention to very specific bands. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I've caught some heat for that, but I, it doesn't phase me one bit. <laughs> That's good. I was wondering because I, and I have to say that I love the ways and I love that you are saying that because, or like that expansion of punk, because we so often, I think, especially when people talk about punk, you know, or any term, anything that has to do with punk, it's like, how do we make it really narrow, right? Like punk died yeah. in like 
you know, it's like, well, punk lasted like a year or punk is dead and all of this. And we don't think about expanding it. And so I appreciate and I appreciate how you really looked at like we need to look at these connections and we can't just sort of say, OK, it wasn't happening in 1976. So therefore, it's not punk. Right. Yeah. So you start, but you start with the band that probably arguably would be the most sort of punk that people would think of, right? So Susie and the Banshees. So can you talk a little bit about that chapter? Like why, um, what about like the wonderful and brilliant Susie Sue um, and and what you saw with her and what you were doing in that chapter? Sure. Yeah. So there are lots of different layers, I think, that are, um, that define that chapter. Um, And for me, you know, it was, um, I mean, Susie had always been um, someone that I had deeply admired. And I, as I talk about in the introduction, I was kind of led to uh, Susie and the Banshees by way of The Cure, who I had discovered before, you know, with um, the EP Japanese Whispers and the album The Head on the Door. Um, and it was just by happenstance that I saw the video for Dear Prudence, um, the um, song that the Banshees had covered, which was a Beatles song from the White Album, and um, and Robert Smith is in the video, and so I was just really excited to see that. And so, you know, my familiarity with Robert Smith and The Cure kind of opened the door for you know discovering the Susie and the Banshees catalog and. And soon, you know, is so much more of a Susie and the Banshees fan as opposed to The Cure. Uh, but, you know, I think the admiration of Susie, you know, is, um, it, you know, is, is historic, you know, in the way that she kind of represents this, you know, exemplary figure for, for women and for queers and the way that, you know, her um, defiance is, you know, is precisely about that kind of railing against the male dominance of the music scene, the punk music scene in particular, um, and then, you know, the subsequent music scenes that uh, follow in its wake. Um, but it was also about uh, thinking about the the different kinds of relationships that she had established um, with Latino uh, figures, such as Kid Congo Powers, the guitarist, one-time guitarist for the Cramps and uh, the Gun Club, and the friendship that they had cultivated. And when the Cramps and Susie and the Banshees toured the U.S., you know, kid takes Susie to Disneyland for the first time. And, you know, there are these really great photos that Donna Santisi um, took of them uh, at Disneyland. And the one that I have reproduced in the book is them riding the uh, rocket ships uh, in Tomorrowland. And I just kind of loved that, you know, that photograph because of the way that it represented this intimacy between this um, woman punk icon and this queer Chicano from Southern California who just kind of, you know, fell into the music scene because of his fandom for these bands that he discovered on a field trip to London with his high school class, you know? Um, And then it was also, you know, kind of thinking about the way that, um, you know, the Latino fan base in Southern California also gravitated towards Susie, um, identifying um, different elements um, of Latino culture and Susie and the Banshees music. I didn't really talk about this in the chapter, but it's in a footnote, you know, their song Dia de los Muertos, where Susie sings in Spanish. Um, you know, just the, 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 the endless references that I think, you know, um, kind of note the, um, the kind of mutual exchanges that are taking place there. And then I end the chapter by talking about how um, I'm at this club in Los Angeles um, 
and I happened to bump into Susie and Budgie and I didn't say anything to her because I didn't want her to, you know, to say something mean and destroy my love for her. Um, and I think that was actually uh, probably um, a good thing in retrospect. Um, uh, but one thing I will say, it's really interesting, you know, as I've been traveling and talking about the book, um, I was discussing the book at the Riverside Public Library and there was a woman in the audience and she comes up to me afterwards and she says, I want to thank you for including my photo in your book. I'm Myra, um, who's, who was the aunt of the young Chicano kid who had won this competition to meet Susie and Budgie uh, when they were touring as the creatures. And it was just so perfect <laughs> that, you know, and she was telling me about how Susie was really wonderful and really sweet and um, you know, talkative. And, and for me, that was kind of, you know, the answer to what it would have been like to, to talk to Susie when I bumped into her at that nightclub. So uh, lots of different things that are going on here, but I think it's kind of the best way to really start the book in terms of talking about the different kinds of connections and uh, the way that um, these various actors come into play both in the past as well as in the present. Yeah. And, you know, I loved one of the things I loved and and I, I'm glad you hit on that picture and that image was that like one of the things you talk about is like using a kiss across the ocean and this kind of this touch and how um, the multiple ways sort of music can physically and emotion can touch you. Right. And so I felt that Susie chapter really showed that, too. And it's like when you talk about that connection and I loved um I, I wanted to be at Disneyland when Susie was at Disneyland, right? Like, how can you not want to just be like, that is amazing. Um, but like, yeah, so that is a beautiful, like, that's got to be like, all right, that store, like meeting her, um, the big, the fan and hearing what she has to say is that's awesome. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So you move from Susie to um, Adam and the Ants and kind of look at, you know, um, who uh can sometimes there's some con i mean everybody often has controversy with them but there's some controversy with him and so can you talk about um adam and the ants and adam ant and how um that chapter and sort of what you were doing with that and what you sort of saw with him sure yeah you know that chapter um uh, was difficult to write because of the way that um uh, i think what i do is open up a door um for Kind of a controversial position where you know you're um, drawn to an artist whose politics are questionable or the the, the music that they produce um you know kind of is troubling on on on, on a number of levels um and so what i tried to do is you know both uh, talk about my admiration for Adam uh, and um, and the ants uh, by way of songs like prince charming and um and and just you know loving going to see him live, but then also indexing the fact that the ants released, you know, two songs, which I think were super cringy, uh, Puerto Rican and Juanito the Bandito. And, and, you know, I'm, I talk about the way that, you know, it, some of the 
some in journalists at the time, you know, particularly those who were affiliated with Rock Against Racism, called out Adam particularly for the song Puerto Rican, you know, light, you know, put a beacon to a Puerto Rican, you know, um, and, you know, light him on fire. And, um, and Adam Ant's response was that it was actually an affirmative representation of Puerto Ricans. But if you read the if you read the lyrics and you don't have to read them too closely, it's kind of, you know, hard to believe that. Uh, Juanito the Bandito is the same thing. It's kind of like it's bringing up this, you know, very stereotypical image of the Mexican that we see in um, in mid-century um, Hollywood film. You know, the greaser are not even mid-century, actually early century, early 20th century representations of Mexicans in cinema. You know, the greaser figure, um, the approximation to Mexican uh, representation to a character like Speedy Gonzalez. Um, the hypersexualized, you know, you know, uncontrollable, you know, Mexican man who always has sex on the mind. Um, and so, you know, I, I talk about how I just can't listen to those songs, you know, even though I'm writing about them. Uh, and yet I'm still able to kind of embrace other elements of the Adam and the Ants catalog. But I wanted this to, you know, get us to think about, you know, why is it that we're drawn to, you know, various bad object choices, you know, knowing full well, you know, what the historical context um, are of those objects, of those individuals, uh, and yet we still feel something for them. Uh, and so I think that this kind of contradictory relationship that we sometimes have with music and music artists um, is a conversation that I wanted to have, you know, my admiration for Adamant, you know, on the one hand, and then also my ability to critique, you know, certain elements of the music. But for me, it was also an, a way to register how, you know, these British kids who were growing up at a particular moment, their introduction to racial difference oftentimes, you know, outside of the fact that they were growing up with a lot of Caribbean and uh, South Asian uh, youths who had been migrating to the UK, but a lot of their exposure to racial difference was through television and film. And so, you know, of course, they're going to draw on those representations and reproduce them um, in their lyrics, especially um, if it's kind of tapping into a certain kind of aesthetic or uh, politics that they're trying to uh, represent. You know, and for Adam Mann, it was all about this overly sexualized, you know, uh, man who is all into S&M and, you know, seduction and and so why not draw on this figure of the hypersexualized Mexican that he could kind of use as part of his, you know, sexually charged image repertoire? Um, and so um, that's kind of what the chapter is about in a nutshell. <laughs> well, yeah. And um, I, like as someone who like these are bands that I grew up with, right, that you start as you get older, you start to see those. So I appreciate that, too, that idea that like I can still remember these times and remember these moments with love um, and and that they help me get through things or help me in, in certain ways. But look at it critically. Right. Like yeah. so you don't need to throw it all away, um, but you can still be critical or, of, of what was going on or what yeah. is going on. Yeah. And it's kind of like what you said before, Rebecca, about, you know, being a huge Smiths fan and a recovering Morrissey fan, you know, and I think, you know, for a lot of us, the Smiths music was so important um, as a means of survival, especially, you know, as a bullied kid or, you know, someone who was experiencing alienation and, you know, the ability to relate to those lyrics um, and the music as a form of uh, um, 
solace and you know the ability for that music to kind of save us you know literally and figuratively um and yet you know to be aware of morrissey's politics and his alignment with um you know the right and anti-immigrant you know sentiment it's like horrible but you know you also want to remember just what that music represented Mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. and that's yes and so like this chapter may often made me think about that right that and i could probably talk about morrissey and the smiths forever so (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but then you um so then you move to like darker entries and i will say i have like you know well and the smiths are one of have one of them but albums and songs that sort of got me through college and peter murphy's cut you up was one and so you moved to Bauhaus and um so can you talk about Bauhaus and and sort of and you talk a little bit about their other iterations as bands but what it is about them and what you wanted to get at with what they were doing yeah so again you know a lot going on in this chapter I think and you know uh, one of the things that I was kind of struck by when reading um an article about Bauhaus's and, and, you know, what they represented as far as goth culture, you know, and, and that, of course, was a category that the band had initially resisted, like Susie and the Banshees. And yet, you know, their incorporation into that category was kind of hard to um, resist um, because of the way that, you know, this subculture that developed, you know, would embrace bands like Bauhaus and Susie Sue and Susie and the Banshees. But I was really struck by this one article that said that goth was the one musical form that was untouched by black music and and i was just kind of appalled by that because i remember you know not only you know as i mentioned before the influence of reggae on punk but also the way that a a goth anthem like bella lugosi's dead is so indebted to reggae and in fact the beat is a is a dub uh reggae beat um and um and so for me, you know, and for me, if you look at the cat, if you look at Bauhaus's catalog, I mean, there's so many, you know, obvious nods to reggae. Um, and um, drummer um, Kevin Haskins, you know, talks about how, you know, his drumming style was very much influenced by reggae. Uh, and so I wanted to tease out that black influence that uh, was kind of um, undeniable in Bauhaus. But then I also wanted to think about um the latino influences um on the band um as well um as the offshoot projects um like uh, love and rockets um and um you know peter murphy and um daniel uh, ash's uh, song walk this way which without realizing it was a riff on um the song oye como va um and actually had to credit Tito Puente for that song because it was virtually the same song, which then it was covered by Carlos Santana. Um, but then also Bauhaus just, you know, it has such a huge influence on on Latino youth um, at the moment of their, um, you know, arrival on the scene up to this very moment. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the three of the members of Bauhaus relocated to Southern California and um, they're very much part of that scene. And so you you hear a lot of these references um, in their music, um, as well as in the interviews that they um, 
that they have about, you know, what it's like to live in Southern California. And then I was also kind of interested in the way that Bauhaus would kind of surface in, in the literature by writers like um, Miriam Gerba, uh, whose story White Girl was about this um, romantic um, connection between a white girl and a Latina, and they were both goths, and they would play Bela Lugosi's Dead endlessly. Um, and... Um, I it also talk about David Jay's um, autobiography um, and um, this one uh, encounter he has with this Chicana from East L.A. who's like banging on his uh, hotel door uh, to let her in. And he wonders if he should do it or not. But it's a really interesting um, encounter that kind of allows me to think about what Bauhaus's music means Um to Latinas in general, and I talk about the the number of uh, friends my my and my sister and other Latinas with whom I'm you know kind of a fan of the band, um, and their relationship to their music, uh, and um, I also just I'm a huge fan of Bauhaus, and so I could not not write about them, uh, and um, I think that's probably one of my favorite chapters, just because you know it's um, yeah it it just resonate their music resonates so much with me. Well, and I, I just want to say that, you know, reading this, as I said, I keep going down memory lane, but that you, this chapter reminded me of this is one band that I kind of absolutely love every iteration of what they did after, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, I am good with love and rockets, tones on tail. Like, I'm like, everything they did, I kind of loved. And so this reminded me of all the ways in which I love <laughs> what, what, what they did. So thank you for that. Sure. Thank yeah. you for that little reminder. I'm like, oh, that's right. That's right. They were in this. Somebody was in this. He was in that. I was like, oh, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I should say, too, that my introduction to Bauhaus came by way of the, the band Japan, uh, who, you know, were kind of like one of the first bands that I just really loved. And I found out about them through um, Star Hits. You know, there was this, you know, a, a, column where people would write in and ask questions to this imaginary um i would later find out she wasn't real uh, but it was just a random staff member's photograph suzanne cologne told me that um and one of the questions was tell me about japan and um, i had read that they were a huge influence on duran duran and um and then it was the discovery that japan bassist mick karn had collaborated with peter murphy uh, to form the band dolly's car and and so that's how I got into Bauhaus. This is awesome. <laughs> and then you move, right? Like, and so then you start to look at like Soft Cell, which is a a very, I don't know if it's a, but it's kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, maybe yeah. as to Bauhaus, right? A very different sort of stylistically, um, and yet ties well with what you're talking about. So can you talk about, you talk a lot about Mark Almond and Soft Cell and sort of what you um, were trying to do with them and what you kind of saw with them. Sure. Yeah, I, I'd always loved Soft Cell. You know, I, I got um, Nonstop Erotic Cabaret as one of the 10 albums for a penny uh, for the Columbia Records, um, you know, deal that always gets you in trouble because you have to buy 10 more albums for at the regular price, which is not really the regular price. It's always an inflated price. <laughs> um, but in any case, I got that album and it was, you know, kind of an eye opener, you know, the the back cover um, has it's a photograph of all the um, adult bookstores and uh, CD cinemas and the Soho district of London. And 
uh, and you know, I was just kind of like really shocked by the song lyrics. You know, I'd been obsessed with Tainted Love because it had it played everywhere just as it does now. Um, but that album opened the door uh, for me to discover um, the rest of the Soft Cell catalog. And, you know, I was always struck by the song numbers and, um, and it's, soon turned out that that was a reference to a novel by John Retchie, who is um, a Chicano Scottish writer um, who became known for his first novel, City of Night. And, um, and, <laughs> and so, so yeah, Numbers was, you know, I mean, and, and, and later it became clear to me that, um, that Mark Allman um, and Dave Ball, but I think Mark Allman uh, more specifically had been reading John Ritchie um, and Jean Genet and a lot of these writers um, that I would eventually, you know, come to love. Um, but that was the source of inspiration for a lot of Soft Cell's music. Um, they also did a song called La Escuadita, which is um, a homage to the Puerto Rican drag bar uh, in New York City. Uh, and, you know, it was so clear to me that Mark Allman had been influenced by um, queer Latino culture, uh, both as a member of Soft Cell as well as a solo artist. Um, and you know, getting his um, first collection of poetry, The Angel of Death in the, in the Adonis Lounge, you know, writing about Puerto Rican go-go boys and these seedy bars and, you know, Puerto Rican drag queens. And and it was like, wow. So there's this huge influence of uh, influence um, of queer Latino culture on Soft Cell and Mark Allman's work. And, um, and I just kind of wanted to highlight the various kinds of um, sexual subcultural intimacies that were at the heart of of soft cells and Mark Allman's music, and at the center of that was you know a, a queer Latino culture that had you know had an indelible influence on Mark Allman, uh, and for me that was you know just really fascinating to uh, to be able to write about you know not only in terms of of the music, but also uh, the poetry and the lyrics that Mark Allman had started publishing um, as an author. Uh, so yeah, that, that that was also just a really important chapter chapter for me to write um, uh, because the way that it is kind of engaging with uh, queerness and sexuality in a very explicit way. Right, and especially thinking about um, the late 80s and the early, even mid to late 80s and early 90s, and what was going on, especially in the United States, right, with very much sort of culture wars and the ways in which we chose to not to or to not talk about sexuality and sexual identity. So I appreciated thinking about that, too, and, and really what some of these artists are doing um, that was really, really um, important Maybe I don't know if that's even the best word for it at that time, right? Like it, yeah, you know, yeah. like what they were doing is really important and something that um, often they, right? In hind, people look at it from the, you know, twenty twenty three, twenty four, and don't think about the the risks that were often taken by these artists to just be themselves, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, you know, I was always struck by the fact that Mark Allman kind of paved the way for a lot of artists, you know, who, um, and even though he wasn't out um at the time you know i think the way that he was read um you know he was kind of out <laughs> even if he didn't want to be you know the the violence that um 
um, that was provoked as a result of Soft Cell's first appearance on top of the pops, you know, with all of the, you know, gyrating and the, you know, feminine gestures and the, you know, black eyeliner and, you know, Mark Allman in his autobiography, Tainted Life, says that it gained him a lot of fans and it gained, gained him a lot of enemies. You know, he started getting love letters from girls and young boys who, after that appearance, ran to the room and started writing love letters. And, <laughs> and yeah, and I think he did in, in many ways help pave the way for future artists like Bronski Beat and Frankie Goes to Hollywood, um, as well as Culture Club um, and Dead or Alive. Um, and, and so you, I don't know if any book about music can um, be complete, a complete book without sort of looking at fashion and roles of fashion too. And so I love that um, in between your chapters on soft sell and Frankie goes to Hollywood, you have this piece on looking at, you call it um, zoot suits and secondhand knowledge and looking at blue Rondo a la Turk. And so can you talk about that too? And, and sort of also looking at fashion and music. Yeah. So I'll just say that Blue Rondo a la Turk is kind of the outlier in the book because I they're the one band that I didn't listen to as a teenager. And I would later find out about them uh, from Stuart Cosgrove, who is a Scottish um, writer and journalist. Um, and he told me, how could you not talk about Blue Rondo a la Turk in this book that you're writing? And, you know, I'd heard their name, but didn't really um, study them much or, or look too much into them. But when I did, it was like, wow, this is amazing. They're not only uh, performing uh, Latin music, but they're also wearing zoot suits. And and for me, that was just, you know, really fascinating. And it was an opportunity to think about, um, you know, the zoot suit um, and the, the way that it had traveled, uh, not only within the U.S., but across the Atlantic and in Britain. And it was adopted by uh, a lot of Jamaican youth who were part of the Windrush generation. Um, and um, some people have argued, historians have argued that it was introduced by those youth, by the African-American uh, sailors during World War II who were wearing them um, when they were um, deployed uh, in, in Europe. Uh, and it was really fascinating to kind of think about the zoot suit in contrast to the rise of the suit in the new romantic scene, uh, the way that the suit had become kind of a, a object, a fashion object of choice uh, by a number of artists, um, Heaven 17, Bauhaus, um, Spandau Ballet, um, almost everyone wore a suit at the time, uh, but more often than not, it was like an Anthony Price suit, you know, it's a really expensive suit. But the zoot suit was, you know, oftentimes something that one would find in a secondhand store, um, a charity shop, and it had just kind of resurfaced and, and, and a lot of youth were gravitating towards the zoot suit. Um, and for me, it was really fascinating because... Blue Rondo or Le Turc, you know, wasn't just kind of adorning the suit just for uh, just as a means of a, you know, making a fashion statement, but it was also politically charged because they were aware of the history of that suit. And coupled with their um, desire to perform Latin music, it was just a really important convergence of, of Latino culture um, that uh, I think a lot of people aren't aware of, you know, this is also a moment when you have um, Latin, Amer like Latin American migration to the UK. And so some of the members of Blue Rondo, Blue Rondo Turk are from Latin America uh, and they're influencing Christos Tolera, who is um, Greek and uh, Chris Sullivan, who is Welsh. 
um, who, you know, are kind of seen as the front and center members of Blue Rondo, Blue Rondo a la Turk, but it's these other members as well who are kind of, you know, giving the band their undeniable Latin sound. And along with the Zoot Suit, it was just a really fascinating history that I wanted to tell. Um, their most famous song, Me and Mr. Sanchez, is after, is um, reference a reference to the California writer Thomas Sanchez, who wrote a book called The Zoot Suit Murders. And, you know, they had read the book and the the lyrics were inspired by that novelist. Um, and so, you know, the 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 influences are both, you know, are, are not just both fashion based and music oriented, but also literary. And it returned me to the moment when, you know, my entryway into academia was through uh, studying literature and my discovery of these books and my desire to learn more about um, literature written by Mexican-American writers. And it turns out um, these British kids were also reading the same literature that I was reading. Which is always awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so then, and, and you talk about like, and I often, I, fashion in a different way, but maybe mass culture selling um, Frankie, right? Frankie goes to Hollywood and I can't get away with like thinking about them without thinking about like, you know, the Frankie says shirts and the yeah. ways in which, you know, um, they were sort of sold. So can you talk though about um, what you saw with Frankie goes to Hollywood and, and, and sort of their relationship to um yes to everything <laughs> yeah you know i have to say you know i when i first heard relax you know i totally picked up on the you know the sexual innuendos you know and um and then there's that um the sound or that moment in the song where yeah there's like uh you know <laughs> when holly johnson says come and it's like this you know kind of explosion of you know water you know well in my mind at the time it was <laughs> yeah. water um, but um it, it, you know i was just really fascinated by um by that song um and then of course uh two tribes uh which became my favorite frankie song but for me they were very defiant and rebellious and then learning that holly johnson and paul rutherford were gay you know and 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 so explicit about that you know it just kind of made their appeal um all that more um you know great for me um but i you know i i kind of in two tribes in particular um uh, was really important for me because it arrived at a moment when i was grieving um as a teenager the passing of my great grandmother who had meant a lot to me um and for me the song you know it, it just it reminded me of, of Freud, you know, the whole idea of um, the death drive and Eros and the way that he talks about um, the coupling of those two elements and beyond the pleasure principle, um, that the subtext of death is life and vice versa. And two tribes represented that. It was about the end of the world as the result of nuclear fallout, um, but it was also a track that was very danceable um, and I thought you can have two things at once. You can have mourning um, uh, and you can also have, you know, some kind of um, arousal, um, you know, uh, luring, luring oneself to pleasure. Um, and they always represented that for me. Um, and I remember hearing Welcome to the Pleasure Dome um, in its entirety when it was first released and just kind of, you know, just loving it. And um you know, it's it's not only you know relax and um, 
two tribes, but it's or, yeah, it's also um, the power of love and the title track, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome and um, Frisco, or Crisco Kisses and, you know, the cover of um, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? You know, all these tracks, I think that, you know, oftentimes don't get talked about. But also Holly Johnson's um, solo career, once the band uh, split, And I was always struck by the fact that in the song Americanos, Holly Johnson, you know, nods to Chicanos in the U.S. And he um, is influenced um, by this newspaper article that he reads um, on a trip to his partner to visit his partner's family in Pittsburgh. And it was about um, Mexican immigration and the way that Mexican immigration had changed, was starting to change the culture um, of the U.S. And And I was just, you know, really struck by, you know, not only the reference to Chicanos, but also the way that you could kind of link that up to the earlier uh, performances by Frankie Goes to Hollywood and the way that both of those two things meant so much to me um, as uh, a young gay Mexican-American man who had just, you know, loved this music and it had saved me um, at two different moments in my, you know, in my early life, you know, in a high, as a high school student, as well as a college student. Um, and then I also talk about my first time seeing um, the video for Relax, you know, it was the censored version um, and it features the band in a, um, in a club, in a leather club, and, you know, a lot of, you know, lewd stuff going on there. Um, and of course it had been banned um, from television. Um, but yeah, so that, that was, I, 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 I wanted to write about Frankie um, because of all of those things, but also because they too are grounded in a history of punk, you know, they're, you know, very much tied into the punk movement in Liverpool. And it's always the you know areas outside of London that I think don't get enough coverage because London is kind of seen as the epicenter of punk. But, you know, you have these musical movements that are taking place um, in cities like Manchester, um, Sheffield, uh, Liverpool. Um, and, you know, Liverpool is uh, an important site for the development of this, you know, really amazing um creativity that's coming out, um, Echo and the Bunnymen, um, The Teardrop Explodes, Dead or Alive, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, um, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yeah, and I will say that your story, your little um, personal piece at the end of this was like my favorite one, because, you know, you talk about meeting Holly Johnson and, and getting him to sign your, you know, your CD, but like waiting to read what it's like. Yeah. I was like, I don't know if I could have waited. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's been really important to me. And, and I will say, yeah, I'm planning on writing um, a book on uh, welcome to the pleasure dome. And I've been, uh, I, I'm still in communication with Holly, you know, sometimes he'll send me, um, some uh, racy uh, memes and uh, you know we just have the really great um, you know repertoire exchange of um, of ideas and um, but yeah he he was really helpful um, in writing the book and um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, yeah thanks for that 
That's wonderful. So you, and, and I, so I will admit if I were in my office, I would right now show you my Neil Tennant um, Funko Pop. Mm. Um, <laughs> and um, that Domino Dancing is my all-time favorite song by the Pet Shop Boys. So thank you, because then I had to put it on like repeat and listen to it and remind myself how much I loved it. And then all the things I didn't know about it after, you know, like, and, you know, who sang backup and all of that and made it even better. So let's talk Pet Shop Boys. Yes, so you kind please. of <laughs> because you start, you sort of said this is where you started. So the Pet Shop Boys, let, yeah, yeah. You know, I love the Pet Shop Boys, and I think you know, I, I said Bauhaus was one of my favorite bands, and Pet Shop Boys is another. Um, you know, for me, it was so clear early on that um, that they were influenced by Latino culture. You know, it's the the Latina um, uh, version of. Um, uh, opportunities and um you know just the the remixes um early on they filmed the video for um suburbia in duarte california and it's clearly a working class you know latino neighborhood um but domino dancing yeah i mean it was when i first heard it i i thought immediately this sounds like expose and you know and loved uh latin freestyle as a teenager but you know when i was growing up it was kind of like you had to stake your claim and align yourself with a particular music um otherwise you know you you know you weren't you know legit um but of course i had um expose's debut album on tape and i hit it whenever my friends came over so when I heard Domino Dancing, I was like, wow, you know, these guys are also listening to Expose. And it turns out they fly to Miami to work with Louis Martinet, who is the, was the producer for um, Expose's album. And they wanted to produce a song that um, was a homage to Latin freestyle. And that was the song. Uh, and when you look at the video, which was shot in San Juan, Puerto Rico, it's also, you know, clear that there is a, another a level of, of Latino cultural influence on the Pet Shop Boys. Um, and then also the the element of queerness, too. You know, people have said that, well, MTV banned the video because they said it was too homoerotically explicit. Um, but when you look at it now, it's like, what? I don't see it. <laughs> but that was, of course, a, a, a different era. As one of my students said, oh, yeah, things you know changed so significantly. Said, yes, but no. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. Um but yeah, and you can kind of see the influence of Latino culture on Pet Shop Boys as you know, as you know, they um, as they progress over the years, and you know, the song or you know, the bilingual, bilingual, you know, their um, uh, their album, which includes single bilingual um, and a lot of other tracks. Say um, Avila, you know, the, the, it, there's a clear Latino influence on their music, and in fact. The single um, single was initially titled, um, our bilingual was initially titled Latino, but they decided to change it. Um, and even up to their most recent song, 30 something, you know, which was influenced by reggaeton, as um, Chris Lowe said, you know, the video is shot featuring uh, members of the band Prayers, who is a self-identified cholo goth band from San Diego. And the video focuses on a formerly incarcerated um, young man who is released from prison and tries to find a job but can't find anything because he's covered in tattoos and ultimately resorts to slaying um, drugs again as a means of supporting his kids. 
So, you know, all these elements that I was just so fascinated by. Um, and so they became, you know, an important band to write about. I will tell you this, though. Um, I got an email um, one day just, you know, out of the blue. And it was um, this guy who was a museum curator. And he told me that he had discovered my book because I wrote about uh, the book um, in the L.A. Times through this plat platform called Delos. And he picked up the book and he said he immediately contacted Neil Tennant, who's a good friend of his. And Neil responded and said, I've always been curious about this phenomenon. I just bought the book um, and I can't wait to read it. And that just like, <laughs> I died. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm so curious to know what Neil thought of, of the book if he read it. Um, but that for me uh, was you know, just kind of um, something I would have never expected. Um, oh, I yeah. love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I love, and I think that I appreciate all the ways in which you tied them to punk too, right? Like in punk and thinking about punk culture and the, right in this post-punk um, kind of space and, and really, and throughout thinking about the connections between, I think we often think we had hip hop and we had punk and then they, you know, they're opposite ends of the spectrum at really thinking about how many of these genres um, came together and, and sort of built off one another and learned from one another, right. And pushed in different ways, but also had um, some ways in which some major connections. Right. And I, so I appreciated how we could see that too. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to the reggae influence on punk. You know, you know, what I wanted to talk about here is how freestyle really is, you know, part of hip hop culture, but it was kind of pushed away because it wasn't seen as conforming to what hip hop would eventually become, which was also very, you know, masculinist um, in the way that it had become rearticulated. And so for me, you know, Pet Shop Boys kind of represent this bridge between hip hop and punk, you know, and there's a quote that I have in there where Neil Tennant says that the early Pet Shop Boys music was almost like punk because of the minimalist quality. And um, he's absolutely right. And then also his own, you know, personal trajectory, you know, having been a writer uh, for Smash Hits, you know, and being part of that scene um, as a, a young person, um, you know, growing up in Northern England and then eventually moving to London. Uh, so that influence was very much part of the the Pet Shop Boys history, um, although you may not be able to detect it uh, just by listening to the music alone. And so you conclude this um, with, you know, you talk about seeing some, you know, throughout you talk about seeing some of these bands, but then you also talk about seeing some um, bands that, what am I, what do I want to say? Like, <laughs> You see some um, cover bands. There we go. Um, right. Like different cover bands and thinking of this and also thinking of how um, some of this music is now impacting or reaching younger audiences. And as a um, as a mother of a 13 year old who is obsessed with anything 80s, I completely see this right through. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that, yeah, and I've probably said this a million times, but I will say it again on here. Like, I took her to see The Cure. We drove to Ohio to see The Cure this summer for her first, like, concert. It was amazing. You know, Duran brought her to see Duran Duran, right? Like, you know, this kind of, um, but I see that, like, touching a new audience and in different ways because of um, some of that history there. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what do you see? Like, and you know, why is this so important? Why should we be talking about this? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I, one of the things I wanted to do in this uh, book is resist, you know, the kind of um, easy nostalgia that sometimes the eighties, you know, come to represent, you know, and um, a hearkening back to a different era and seeing how things were um, in the past. But I wanted to talk about how this music is alive and well, and it doesn't just stop short uh, in the eighties uh, that it influences people to take up instruments and um, to form cover bands or tribute bands and uh, pay their respects to the artists that change their lives. Um, and how in Southern California in particular, and I think it's, it's not just Southern California, but it's also um, everywhere really, how these tribute bands draw huge audiences because of the way that, you know, if, if the band no longer exists or, you know, they refuse to play certain songs, these tribute bands kind of uh, pick up the slack and, 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 and give the audiences what they like, you know, the music that they want to hear. Um, but I'm not so much interested in that as much, as much as I am the way that the tribute band takes shape as a way to kind of touch the uh, artists that influence them and um, that in turn kind of inspire them to pay tribute um, to these artists um, and uh, for this in, in the service of, 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 of the, a fan base of which they're a part. And then also I talk about going to a specials concert um, in Anaheim uh, with one of my friends. And, uh, and when we walked in, I saw a group of, uh, of young Latino guys who were holding up a banner that said ghost town. And I was just kind of struck by them. They're very stylish and, and um, on that banner also said Anaheim against racism. And so I was just kind of curious to see what they were all about. And it turns out they're a, a DJ collective who perform at different political uh, functions in Southern California um, and very much inspired by the specials uh, and their, uh, you know, post, I mean, yeah, their, um, uh, their politics at the moment, which is all about drawing attention to um racial and economic disparity, you know, the lack of, uh, of jobs, um, you know, the depressed conditions in which uh, youth are raised in, uh, in Britain uh, for the specials, and then also for these kids with respect to uh, their citizenship status um, and their racial and ethnic identities. And, you know, they take their name from, of course, the special song Ghost Town. Uh, and, for me, it was just an example of the way that this music is so important cross-generationally that it's not just people in their 50s and 60s who are waxing nostalgic, but it's also a younger generation of people who identify with this music. And it is, you know, kind of a, a source of not just escapism, but uh, identification with otherness uh, that they don't otherwise have you know i see this with my niece who's 14 years old and she loves Susie sue and she loves her rebelliousness and you know very assertive and um and um, and so you know she she likes a lot of contemporary music but she's also 
big on the music that my sister and I listened to as teenagers and it makes perfect sense. And so, yeah, that was the whole point of ending the book on that note to just um, talk about how this music, you know, is not just a thing of the past, but it continues to live on and it materializes in different ways uh, through uh, the formation of the tribute band, as well as in fandom of uh, for younger people who, you know, are just as excited about this music as we were. So, yeah. so I'll ask you my one final question. Um, like, so you, the book's been out for about a year or so now, like, what are you working, working on now? Like what's the next, uh, what do you want to sort of self-promote? <laughs> well, I said I wanted to. Uh, I I I want to write a a book on uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood's uh, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, and I'm gonna take a stab at um, pitching something for the 33 and a third series. Um, and of course, you know, it's kind of like you know finding the Wonka golden ticket. You know, you, you, it's not it's not a given. You have to be selected. Um, but even if it's not accepted for that series, it's something that I, I want to write about just because of the um, my love of that album and the way that I think it just kind of tells us a lot about, you know, our contemporary moment and how it reflects, you know, the politics of the day, not just in the from the 80s, but also um, right now at this moment. Um, and then also, I think I still have this, um, you know, point to prove that they weren't just the... Um, product of Trevor Horn, but that they were actually, you know, an original band with original ideas prior to his um, working with them in the studio, uh, that they're a band that we need to take in, uh, take note of um, and to see as having made an, a really important impact. Um, I am writing about, I'm just finishing this article on the band Los Bacaminos, which is uh, Paul Young's band. Um, which is a group of, of, of British musicians who pay their respects to Tex-Mex music. Um, they love Flaco Jimenez and the Texas Tornadoes and, um, and they tour uh, mostly around Europe. Uh, and uh, again, I think it's just another example of the way that musical cultures always travel um, and that there um, are so many examples of this transatlantic intimacy that I'm talking about in A Kiss Across the Ocean that uh, didn't get covered uh, in the book. Well, Ricky Rodriguez, um, thank you for talking with me for new books on popular culture about A Kiss Across the Ocean. It was a pleasure. Likewise, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me.